Shalom, and welcome to Kehilat Rosh Pina, a dynamic, multicultural, and growing Messianic Jewish congregation located in the heart of Oklahoma City and led by Rabbi Michael Weigand. Our goal is to bring you the message of the Word each week from a Jewish perspective and to exalt the Messiah Yeshua as Lord and Savior overall. We are a loving congregation made up of both Jew and Gentile, now one in the Messiah, with Shabbat morning services at 10.40 a.m. and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoyed today's message. If you didn't realize it, today is a special Shabbat. I think every Shabbat is special. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm geared that way. And how many of you agree that Shabbat's a special day? For those that weren't raised in Judaism or weren't raised in a Sabbath observance, uh, the seventh day as a Sabbath, that it's quite a transition, but it's very worthwhile. But this is a special Shabbat because this is the Sabbath that occurs during Hag HaSukkot, during the Feast of Tabernacles, this Shabbat. And if you look in the communique, you realize that uh, the regular reading cycle uh, of the Torah is, is different this week. Mainly the readings during this week have centered upon the feast days of the Lord, mainly. Now, I use the term Sukkot, which around here most people understand that term, but let me explain a little bit about that. Sukkot is a Hebrew word. It's a plural Hebrew word. The singular is Sukkah. And that means, uh, depending on translation and depending on context, means everything from a hut, a shelter, a tabernacle, a booth, depending on context. It occurs in a few places in the Hebrew scriptures, the word sukkah. And the word sukkah is not related at all to the word tent. It's not related at all to the word camp or camping. It's not connected at all to that. And... The celebration that we call Sukkot, or Chaga Sukkot, the Feast of Sukkot, really focuses, of course, on the Lord first, but it focuses on that little booth, the Sukkah. It focuses on that. It's a, when you look at a Sukkah, really the, the, real, the real substance of Sukkot is seen when a Sukkah is placed next to a permanent home. The Sukkah is a temporary dwelling, a hut, a shack, you know, a shelter, that type of thing. But when it stands alongside or is built alongside of a permanent dwelling, you have this picture of permanent and not permanent. Now, the sukkah is also a humble dwelling. If you build a sukkah next to a mansion, uh, the, the sukkah, by definition, is a hut, it's a shack, and if the sukkah's right alongside of a mansion, you know, you see how humble that sukkah is in comparison. And the sukkah stands for some of the contradictory things that we have in our own lives. You know, one Jewish publication said it this way. It went so far as to say in an article I was reading this week, it said, the sukkah represents the messianic ideal. Now, when I read that, I kind of like, yeah, I like that. The sukkah represents the messianic ideal. And it went on to explain that the messianic ideal is humility, 
Did Yeshua humble himself? Yes, he did. Took the form of a servant and laid down his life for you and for me. Redemption? Is Yeshua our redeemer? Is the Messiah redeemer? Yes, he is. And then also the sukkah speaks about hospitality. And it's so interesting in, in our songs that we we're just singing, there was an invitation, wasn't there? Come, oh, come. Come, oh, come to the master's table. There's an extension of hospitality to come in and, and, and fellowship, sup with the Lord, based on Revelations 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Many of you know that scripture. And also... It speaks of a better future. If you have a, a temporary home, there's always the hope, the desire that your home will become permanent, that you'll have a permanent place to dwell. And I know we as Jewish people and Jewish people over the centuries have wandered and wandered at times from country to country. That's why I'm so committed to the land of Israel, the people of Israel. Aren't you glad for the land of Israel, the physical uh, appearance of God's miraculous work in bringing the Jewish people back to our traditional homeland? I'm very thankful for that. So we are here on earth for a relatively short time. When you think about it, I know there was a time when I was 18 or 19 where I thought, I don't know if I'll ever make it to 60. (laughs) Really, 25. <laughs> but we are here on earth for a relatively short time. Yet for committed believers, those who have personally received and accepted Yeshua as Lord, when we, when we are committed to him, eternal life looms large for us, no matter what age you are. When you make that commitment, when he apprehends your heart and you turn your life over to him in all the aspects of your life, eternal life looms large. And that is one of the great promises that Yeshua offers to his people, that if we believe in him, we shall not perish, but have what? Everlasting or eternal life. That's a great promise. And also, as we read Yochanan John, particularly chapters 14 through 17, Yeshua clearly says that he went to prepare a place for us. I kind of like that idea, don't you? He went to prepare a place for us so that we can be with him. And we've spoken many times about that. It seemed like one of the, the last things he wanted to get across to his Talmudim, to his disciples, that uh, their life that they were living then, which was going to get very difficult for them after Yeshua's uh, death, burial, and resurrection. And as they received the commission to go out into the world, Yeshua said, I, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I, I would guess, and I, I think human nature would say that probably over and over again during the years after Yeshua's resurrection, and as they were about the Great Commission, they kept remembering what Yeshua said to them, and that was probably one of the things that they remember. But he said he's going to prepare a place for us. He's going to prepare a place for us so that we could be where he is. And yet, we are in this world right now, but we're not of the world, as Scripture says. We really reflect what King David wrote in Tehillim in Psalm 119, verse 19. He wrote this, Ger anochi v'aretz. He wrote, I am a stranger in the earth. Just think about that, David, writing, I am a stranger in the earth. 
And I also think the words of 1 Yohanan, 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, where it says, the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, recently I read an article that had this premise, and some of you may have also seen this article. The, the premise was, quote, 14 sukkah facts every Jew should know, end quote. <laughs> and I, I looked at that, the, the title really grabbed me, uh, 14 sukkah facts every Jew should know. And so I began to read that article, but it was the word fact, F-A-C-T, the word fact that grabbed my attention. 14 sukkah facts every Jew should know, and the word fact jumped out at me. Not sukkah, but fact. So I read the article carefully, actually twice. I read the article carefully to determine whether the facts being presented were actually facts according to Scripture. Now, realizing this, and I think you would agree with this, after all, that Sukkot, even the celebration of tabernacles that we're in the final days of, that the celebration of tabernacles was first introduced to humanity in Scripture. How many agree with that? <laughs> we learn about it in Scripture. You didn't learn about it in the New York Times or the Denver Post or any, any other place. We learn about Sukkot from Scripture. What it tells us, when God ordained these holy days the Moadim, as they're called in Hebrew, these appointed times. So scripture then becomes a baseline. And let me say this as a general rule of thumb, and please hear this, as a general rule of thumb, with any issue we face in life, it really is a good thing. It is a good direction to go to ascertain what the Bible says about that situation. How many of you follow what I'm saying right now? To look to Scripture, see what the Scripture says. And you'll find, and many of you can, can give testimony to this, you found that many times in your spiritual walk, if you're a believer here today, in your spiritual walk, many times the Lord has directed you to particular passages of Scripture that spoke to you for that particular situation. Some things are directly spelled out in Scripture. For example, thou shalt not murder. How many believe that's spelled out in Scripture? It is. <laughs> and all the others, the thou's and thou, not, the thou shalt do's and the thou shalt not do's are spelled out in Scripture. They're in plain writing there in Scripture. And if we stay away from Scripture in life and we don't really look towards Scripture and, and receive Scripture according to the power of the Spirit, then we're really hurting ourselves. We may be hindering our walk. So we want to be scripturally oriented. So as I read this article about the sukkah, I was thinking, well, the scripture's the baseline. What does scripture say? And are these really facts, F-A-C-T-S, are these really facts that are being presented as facts? As I said, the Bible does offer many facts to us. And if we disregard Bible-based facts, we're really hurting ourselves, we're hindering ourselves, and we're allowing something else to fill in that gap in our own thinking, which often directs our own ways. So when I was done carefully reading the article on 14 facts, I discovered there were maybe four of the 14 so-called facts that were indeed facts according to the Scripture. 
After all, Sukkot is introduced where? In the scripture. There were four of them. And the rest were traditions and customs and ideas that have come forward that were presented as authoritative and factual within the article. But when I started looking at what it says in scripture in comparison to what the article said, I could make a case for four of the 14 as actually being biblically true. Biblical facts. I want to share with you what the four biblical facts were in this article. They were, first of all, fact number one, a sukkah is a shelter. How many agree that's that's the truth? A sukkah is a shelter, and the, the scripture tells us that. The second fact was Sukkot commemorates the exodus. Well, scripture tells us that. Sukkot commemorates the exodus. The third fact of the four that I found of the 14 was the first night is special. Yes, the first night of Sukkot is special, and Scripture is pointed out as being special. And the fourth one that I found that seemed to be biblically sound and correct as a fact was that Ezra, the scribe, inspired the people to build Sukkot, to build tabernacles. He inspired them, and you can read Ezra and Nehemiah and find out that that is biblically true, he did. But there were 10 other ideas that were presented in the article as facts. And as I looked at what was presented as facts and what the Bible shows, I didn't see a jive there. They didn't seem to coordinate. For example, one of the facts that was presented, there must be more shade than sun in your sukkah. I'm trying to think of, well, what does the Bible say? Does it say that? Another one was, there must be three walls in the sukkah. Does the Bible really say that? If we're going to be scripturally oriented people, shouldn't we confer with scripture? After all, where Sukkot is actually presented to us originally by the Lord himself, shouldn't we look at what scripture says about Sukkot? And that become our baseline. There is also another fact that was presented. The fact said there is a minimum and maximum height for a Sukkah. I thought, oh, that's interesting. Where'd that come from? Scripture, passage, and verse couldn't find one. And then there was another one that says there are specific blessings that we must say when we're in the sukkah. Now, where does that come from? Now, I'm not necessarily denigrating these ideas, but I think that let's not confuse those things which are traditional requirements with biblically-based requirements. How many of you believe that we have some obligation to biblically-based statements in our lives? We do. But how far do, how much of an obligation do we have to traditional statements that were, you know, brought up by someone else other than the Lord? Could they be inspired? Yes. And we have a careful process we go through in Messianic Judaism to look and see, are these things scriptural? Does the Bible really say this? Or are we taking some other authority upon ourselves? But there are many, many factual aspects to tabernacles that we find in Scripture, many of them. I'm going to give you several examples of factual things that Scripture tells us about the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a fact, according to Scripture, that the Feast of Tabernacles begins on the 15th day of the seventh month, which we call Tishri now. It had different names over Jewish history. But the seventh month now in the Hebrew calendar is called Tishri. That's a fact. 
Scripture shows it. It's very true. Also in the Bible, Sukkot is called by several other names. And they're all mentioned in the Bible. Different ways of determining something. By the way, you as a person, do you have some names and nicknames that refer to you? I'm not going to ask you to say them. (laughs) Some of our nicknames we wish we never had. I mean, like individuals called Shorty. You know, they may not like that. I knew a a fellow from Texas where everything's supposed to be big, but he was Shorty. (laughs) That was his name. He probably had emotional problems because of that growing up. But Sukkot is also called in the Bible by some different names, and you can find them in Scripture. It's called Hechag, the feast, the feast. It's called the Feast of Adonai, the Feast of the Lord. It's called the Feast of Booths when we start looking at New Covenant references. It's also called the Feast of Tabernacles, another translation for booths. And simply, it's called the Feast of Ingathering because it involves harvest. One scripture refers to it as an ingathering. And then the one that I like and I've been using here quite readily is the term Sukkot, tabernacles, booths. Well, that, these are biblical facts. You can find scriptures to verify what I just said. Another biblical fact Sukkot is the last great biblical feast of the year and the last of the three major pilgrimage feasts, the Shlosh Regalim, they're called in Hebrew. Sukkot is the last one, which according to Leviticus chapter 23, these pilgrimage feasts started with Hagamatzot, the Pesach, Passover time, ushered us into Shavuot, what's commonly called Pentecost, And now we come at the end of the harvest, to the autumn harvest, we come to what? Sukkot, to tabernacles. Also, it is a biblical fact that Sukkot is a holiday with purpose. There's a purpose. Sukkot is a generation-to-generation celebration to help assure that B'nai Israel, the children of Israel, did not forget their deliverance by God from Egypt. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 43, says this. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That your generations may know, here's the purpose, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Israel. I am the Lord, your God. Sukkot is one of the three major feasts Israel was to observe yearly, according to Deuteronomy 16, verse 16. says that they were appearing before the Lord your God in the place which he shall choose, which Scripture reveals to be Jerusalem. Deuteronomy 16, 17, another fact says they were not to appear before the Lord empty-handed, and each person was to give in proportion to the amount of blessing they received from the Lord. And as we look at Scripture, again, Scripture is our baseline. So we look at Scripture, we can't help but notice the extreme importance of the seventh month in general of the Hebrew calendar, and also Sukkot in particular, how important it was. For example, in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 2, it's pointed out that it was during the seventh month of the Hebrew calendar year that Solomon's temple was dedicated. I think that's a pretty major event. There are chapters of Scripture that deal with that, the dedication of Solomon's temple. 
And that that dedication overflowed into the very celebration of Sukkot that went on for days in the seventh month. And according to the book of Ezra, how many know there is a book in the Bible called Ezra? (laughs) Good. I'm in good company. (laughs) But according to Ezra chapter 3, verse 1, it was in the seventh month the Israelites who had returned from Babylonian captivity. In the seventh month, they returned to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem was in the seventh month. And they gathered there in the seventh month, according to Ezra chapter 3, under the leadership of Yehoshua, Joshua, and Zerubbabel. They gathered under that leadership. And in Ezra chapter 3, verse 4, it declares this. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles. So they gathered in the seventh month after the Babylonian captivity, seventh month of the Hebrew calendar year, under Joshua and Zerubbabel's leadership and others, And they also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written. And they also offered the daily burnt offerings in the the number required by ordinance for each day. They were looking at what the Word says and applying it to their lives. Shouldn't we look at what God's Word says in any area of our life and, and seek by the help of the Holy Spirit, the enabling of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, seek to apply that to our lives? We'll be better off if we do. It's better, after all, to do things God's way, not just our way. Later, in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 2, something remarkable happened. It's recorded in that chapter. And it tells us it was the seventh month that this happened, the seventh Hebrew calendar month. By the way, we're in that month right now, according to modern reckoning. But something remarkable happened in the seventh month, Nehemiah 8, verse 2. So Ezra the Kohen, the Levitical priest, brought the Torah scroll before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Can you imagine that? They're regathered, begin building, and Ezra the scribe, Hasophar, he brings the Torah scroll out in front of them. We read later in this verse, in this chapter, we read one of the most quoted verses in Scripture is found in this chapter. In this context of the seventh month, right around this time of the calendar year, this time of the celebration of Sukkot, right around this time, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10 says, Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. In this context, it was stated. This time of the year. How many of you have heard that verse before? The joy of the Lord is your strength. I know there are numbers of songs that are written about it. But in this context, seventh month, these type of statements came out. Because this is, after all, time of rejoicing. This idea of the joy of the Lord is our strength or your strength, as it says in Nehemiah 8.10. It augments, it adds to the biblical-based idea that Sukkot is, as we call it now, Zaman Sibchatenu, time of our rejoicing. We danced, I shouldn't say we, I didn't get up and dance on that one. (laughs) But that beautiful dance in the beginning of this service, 
It's the time of our rejoicing. Well, Nehemiah 8, 10 says, For the joy of the Lord is your strength. And Nehemiah 8, verse 13 and forward says this. Listen carefully to what happened in this seventh month. Right about this time of the year, with a regathered people from Babylon in Jerusalem and Jerusalem. It says, Now on the second day, Nehemiah 8, verse 13, On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests, Kohanim, Levites, they were gathered to Ezra the scribe. They were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the Torah. So they gathered together. In verse 14, And they found written in the Torah, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees to make booths, to make Sukkot, to make tabernacles, as it is written. Verse 16, Nehemiah chapter 8. And then the people went out. They went out and brought them and made themselves Sukkot, tabernacles, booths. And then it describes where they put their booths. Each one on the roof of his house. (laughs) Did anyone put a sukkah on the roof of your house? By the way, I'm just curious. (laughs) If you were in Jerusalem right now and you were wandering through Israel right now, you would see Sukkot, you'd see tabernacles on Merpeset, on, on, the, on the porches, on the, by the roofs, all over the place. Going back all the way to this passage of Scripture, perhaps. Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house or in their courtyards or the courts of the house of God. And in the open square of the water gate, and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim, verse 17, so the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths, and they sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. The verse next says, And there was very great gladness. Again, this idea of rejoicing. There was very great gladness. Also, day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner, the sacred assembly, the Hebrew says, uh, Shmini Yatzeret, on the eighth day. So by the first century, when we go forward from Nehemiah, the regathering of the children of Israel from captivity in Babylon, then we come to the first century. And who walked in the time of the first century? Yeshua, his shlichim, his apostles, his talmidim, his disciples all within the Jewish community, and Sukkot was still being celebrated. By the time of the first century, Sukkot itself, from a simple uh, celebration, had become a great pompous celebration in Jerusalem. After all, we're told to rejoice. It's a time of rejoicing. 
and added ceremonies were placed into Sukkot. Some of them are attested to in Scripture. The ceremonies, they were added by the prevailing religious authorities of that area, and they were, you know, magnificent ceremonies that were added. There were two major ceremonies. Some of you are familiar with them. The ceremony of light, the celebration of light, and the ceremony of water, often called the libation ceremony. I want to read an excerpt from Rabbi Leo Trepp's classic book, The Complete Book of Jewish Observance, because he spends a couple of paragraphs describing first century Jewish observance. Here's what he says. On Sukkot, a flask filled with water from a nearby well was carried triumphantly into the temple and solemnly poured out on the great altar as an offering. This was an expression of thanksgiving for the precious fluid and at the same time a prayer that God grant this life-giving substance again next year. And to this day, by the way, we pray for rain in Israel on Sukkot at this time. Rabbi Trepp continues, the people were jubilant as they watched the presentation of the libation, as they watched this water ceremony, they were jubilant. They had been put in the mood for rejoicing. Joyfully shall ye draw water from the fountains of triumph. And you shall say on this day, praise the Lord, proclaim his name. Isaiah chapter 12, verses 3 and 4. As soon as night fell at the end of the first day of Sukkot, a spectacular entertainment began in the temple area. Spectacular entertainment. Young Kohanim, young priest, lit gigantic candelabra whose powerful light illuminated every courtyard in the city of Jerusalem. The pious men of distinction danced with torches in their hands. The trumpets blared. He who has not witnessed the joy of the water drawing has never in his life experienced real joy. The merrymaking lasted through the night. And these temple celebrations have deeply influenced our religious rites. So by the time of the first century, many other things had been added into Sukkot. And that brings me to Yeshua. He's the most important one. Heaven and earth may pass away, but his word will not pass away. It's forever established. We read all about this time of the year in Yohanan, John chapter 7. And if you have a chance, I'd encourage you to read that chapter before Sukkot is over with. But in John chapter 7, verse 2, we are told, first of all, the time frame of that chapter, we're told that it was the Feast of Tabernacles. This very time of the year. And, you're, and uh, Yeshua's in Jerusalem at this very time of the year. In John chapter 7, most of it is based on this time of the year and the celebrations of this time of the year. In John chapter 7, verse 14, we're told that Yeshua went into the temple in Jerusalem, and he went in and doesn't say he celebrated, although I'm sure he rejoiced, but he went in and to the temple in Jerusalem. You know what he did? He taught them on Sukkot. 
And Sukkot is a good time of learning. How many of you have learned something about Sukkot this year? I have. And when Yeshua appeared in the temple and he began teaching them, I can't help but think of a prophetic word that came from Malachi, from Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1. Malachi prophesied. He said, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the breach of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. And there Yeshua is on Sukkot, and at other times, by the way. But here he is on one of the Shlosh Regalim, this great feast, Hechag, the feast, the final pilgrimage feast. There he is in the middle of the celebration. He goes into the temple, the Beit HaMikdash, and he begins to teach them. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Then remarkably, in the same chapter, again, the setting is the Feast of Tabernacles. In John chapter 7, beginning with verse 37, it declares that it chronologically that it had come to the last day of the feast, the great hallelujah day of the feast. And that roughly corresponds, by the way, in our calendar to tomorrow. Today, tomorrow, depending on your reckoning. And on that last great day of the Feast of Tabernacles, Yeshua stood up in the temple. Here's what it says in John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, most considered to be Hoshana Rabbah, Yeshua stood and he cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, what do they do? Let him come to me. And drink. Let him come to me and drink. I know in my life, and maybe you can relate to this, there have been times when I've had a hunger deep inside that I did try to fill with food. <laughs> Seems funny talking about on Sukkot when there's been all this delicious kugel and other things I've been eating and my wife's wonderful food. But there's a deeper hunger sometimes that food does not satisfy. Physical food will not satisfy it. The only place where satisfaction comes is through Yeshua the Messiah. By the power of his spirit. There are times when I felt thirsty and water didn't do it. I don't drink Coca-Cola and all that, but water didn't do it. Coffee didn't do it. Tea didn't do it. Because a human being, and maybe you're here today and you have that kind of a hunger, maybe you're here today, you have that kind of a thirst. Well, as our worship team said, come, come to the master's table. And as Yeshua said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Friends, we're not going to be deeply satisfied until we find our place at the foot of the Messiah. You're going to try to fill it in many different ways, but only Yeshua deeply satisfies a thirsting soul or a hungering soul. There's nowhere else to go. Religiosity won't do it. Your own cleverness will not do it. <laughs> Acceptance by your friends is not going to do it. That may help, but not going to do it. 
That deep inner spot belongs to the Lord. That's the place of his throne. That's the place where he rules. May he rule over all our lives here today on this Sukkot. On that last day, that great day of the feast, Yeshua stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, it's a blanket invitation to the whole world. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Then he said this, he who believes in me, notice this next phrase. As the scripture has said, we are to be scripturally oriented people. In the Messianic Jewish movement, we have to do a lot of ferreting out of things. Is it scriptural? Some things we need to connect because they're scriptural. But he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, one translation says, out of his belly, deep from within will flow rivers of living water. Not a little trickle, not a few tipot, a few drops, but rivers of living water. PBS, how many of you are familiar with the local public broadcasting service? They have a series they're doing on the great rivers of the world. And I was kidding this young man right here, whom I love dearly, Michael Hayes. I was telling him that the name of the narrator for the PBS River series is, I go to watch the first one, and it's Michael Hayes. <laughs> This guy right here. And I said to him when I first saw him a week or so ago, I said, have you been moonlighting and doing other things for PBS? But it describes rivers, and, and the Yukon was the latest one I watched, the Yukon River, and it starts from almost nothing. And by the time it gets to the Pacific and up in there, the Arctic Circle, it just overflows as one of the biggest deltas of any river in the world. Of course, no one lives up there, but it's one of the biggest deltas in all the world. Maybe that's what God wants for us, that there'll be an overflow in our life, rivers of living water flowing from deep within us that will impact the lives of those at our workplace, those in our family, those in our neighborhood, those that we meet, that we would be more than just quiet believers. But we would be soaking everybody with the river of life, the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, verse 38 of Yohanan 7, has out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Ruach, the Spirit, whom those believing him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Yeshua was not yet glorified. My friends, Yeshua is now glorified, and you can ask him for deepened measures of the Holy Spirit in your life. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but just be honest with yourself. How many times have you gotten on your face before God and said, please give me a deeper measure of your spirit? Think about it. Think about it. He said, ask and you shall receive. Think about it. John chapter 7 then continues because after Yeshua makes these magnanimous statements, these tremendous statements at this time of the year in Jerusalem in the first century, you would think everybody would be glad and rejoice. But listen to what happens because Yochanan's account in John chapter 7, beginning verse 43, gives an assessment of the crowd's reaction. Here's what it says, beginning with verse 40. Therefore, many from the crowd... When they heard this saying, what Yeshua was saying, 
They said, truly, this is Hanavi Agadol. This is the great prophet. This is the prophet that Moses spoke about. Truly, this is him. Others said, this is the Christ. This is the, that's the Greek word for the Messiah. This is the Mashiach, others said. So far, so good, huh? Everybody's kind of getting it. But then there's the next part. But some said, will the Messiah come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Messiah comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? By the way, they're correct. The scripture does foretell that. They just didn't have the right information. They didn't realize Yeshua was born in Bethlehem. And some of them probably didn't know that he was Ben David, a descendant of King David. And then verse 43. So there was a division among the people because of Yeshua. Friends, today there is still division over Yeshua. Still division over him. It's really divided in two ways here, in my opinion. And you can think about this. There are those who accept him, who he is, and believe in him. And then, to make it simple, there are those that don't. There are believers and unbelievers in Yeshua. How many of you have met some unbelievers in Yeshua in your life? How many of you have met some believers? Yes, you have. Now, to conclude, at this Feast of Tabernacle time, if there is those who, there are those who believe in Yeshua and those who don't, then maybe this Sukkot question is important. In your life, where are you placing your sukkah? Where are you placing your sukkah in this life? Is your sukkah found among those who are trusting Yeshua as the way, the truth, and the life? Is that where you're tabernacling? Is that where your life's found? Is that the foundation of your life? Or is your sukkah built in that place of unbelief, that place of selfishness, that place of greed, or even for some trusting in their own righteousness. Is that where your sukkah is found? Yehoshua Joshua said it this way, one of the most repeated verses in the book of Joshua. He said, as for me and my house, <laughs> if we put it into tabernacle terms, as for me and my sukkah, as for me and my house, say it with me, we will serve the Lord. Let's say it together. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I think we know where Joshua's sukkah was planted, where his house stood. How about you? Where's your sukkah planted? Where are you building your sukkah? Among those who believe and trust in the Lord with all your heart and you're not leaning on your understanding or are you building something else with your life? Well, there's a biblical fact that we all must reckon with and this is the fact, I believe. It's in John chapter 1, verse 14 where it declares that Yeshua became flesh and he tabernacled, literally dwelt among us. And Sukkot, like all the feasts, the great feasts of the Lord, Sukkot points us to Yeshua as the Lord and King. That's why we have a crown hollow over here in a Messianic synagogue. 
because we know King Yeshua. He is the Melech HaOlam. He's the king. And Sukkot also reminds us of God's great delivering power. The children of Israel were not to forget that they had been delivered out of Egypt, out of the bondage of Egypt. And friends, if you're a believer in Yeshua and you've received him as your Lord and Savior, then you know you've been delivered from the bondage of sin, that sin is losing its hold on you. And little by little, as you yield yourself to the Lord, sin is falling off of your life. And you're looking more and more towards the Lord who is your Redeemer, the Lord who is your Savior, the Lord who is your King, the Lord who is the very one that tabernacles with you in your life. And we can be thankful that God knows us fully. He knows us exactly. He helps us. He's an ever-present help in time of trouble. He helps us. He provides for us. In Sukkot, they weren't too pure, empty-handed. It was a way of saying, the Lord has provided abundantly for me. And I'm returning what belongs to him. And the Lord has provided for us. And as we go through this wilderness we call life, let's keep tabernacling with our Messiah. Please, I implore you, get it right if it's not right. Make it right if it's not right. Draw closer to God. He'll grow closer to you. He's preparing his people for the world, he, for the tabernacles he's created. I go to prepare a place for you. It's called a mansion in some translation. He said, my father's house, there are many mansions. There are many dwelling places. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And someday, and each day draws nearer, his feet are going to land on the Mount of Olives. And when his feet touch, as Zechariah foretells, when his feet touch the Mount of Olives, it's not going to be business as usual. It says that the Mount of Olives is going to split in two. You know what? Bo Adon Yeshua, Bo. Let's say that together. Bo Adon Yeshua, Bo. Come, Lord Yeshua, come. Let's say it again. Bo Adon Yeshua, Bo. Will you pray with me, please? Please take stock of your life at this tabernacle times. I believe part of the reason the Lord gave us these feasts, gave them to the children of Israel, but opened them up to others, that he gave us these feasts was so that we would not forget the very important issues of life. Stay scriptural, stay Messiah-centered, and remember that he is your redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning. You are a great king. You rule over all the earth. As your word says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We thank you that all power and authority has been given unto your holy son, Yeshua. We thank you, O oh Lord, that in your great purpose, your great plan, you gave us the way that leads not to death. You have offered to those who will Hayeolam, eternal life, to those who will receive you, those who will accept you, those who will follow in the ways of your Messiah. Lord, I pray for each person here this day, each family represented 
each worker or represented that has co-workers. Lord, I pray that you will anoint us for your service on this Sukkot and beyond so that your name would be glorified in our lives. I ask these things according to the merit, the merit of Yeshua the Messiah. Amen. You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pinah Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. Our weekly services begin at 10.40 a.m. each Shabbat, and we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place, north of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, excellent children's programs, and Bible studies on Tuesday nights. For more information, please visit our website, www.roshpinah.org. That's R-O-S-H-P-I-N-A-H dot O-R-G. You can also reach us by phone at 405-842-1967 or email us at info at roshpinah.org. Thank you for spending time in the Word with us today. Shabbat Shalom and blessings in Messiah Yeshua.